if you have your Bible, I would invite you to open with me to John 13. Now, if you remember back in late August of 2021, the United States uh, had decided uh, to withdraw its forces from Afghanistan. That led to a significant number of people seeking to flee before uh, the the Taliban regained full control uh, of the government there. And uh, Americans and other foreign nationals were were seeking uh, flights out of the the country. Uh, Not only uh, foreign nationals, but uh, any Afghan national who had helped uh, the U.S. uh, during uh, the time that the U.S. was there in Afghanistan. Uh, Anybody who helped during uh, those years was also seeking to flee the country. Because they knew as soon as the the Taliban regained control, things would not go well for them. That the the Taliban would seek to uh, retaliate against them. And on August 26th, uh, as the the international airport there in Kabul was was brimming with people seeking to escape, uh, there was a a suicide bomber who uh, came to one of the gates at the airport uh, and uh, made an attack. And the, the bomb detonated and killed 169 civilians and 13 members of the U.S. military. But th- this attack wasn't carried out by a member of the Taliban. It was actually carried out by a member of the, the group known as uh, the ISKP, the Islamic State in Khorasan province, which uh, they were in conflict with the Taliban regarding uh, who would seize power and take control there. Now, these, these kinds of reports of suicide bombings, they, they are very frequent, right? It's almost like we've become uh, desensitized to them uh, when, we, when we hear about them uh, in the news, especially when they take place overseas, uh, and they are happening regularly around the world. So many of these attacks are, are driven by zeal for really a, a false religion. A religion that that glorifies uh, the the murder of anybody who would uh, speak against that religion, and uh, but but the the zeal itself, well zeal zeal itself can uh, be neutral, neither uh, positive nor negative. Right? We, we see these examples of these kinds of uh, suicide uh, attacks, and yet uh, you and I are uh, also called to be zealous. Right? Christ himself was zealous. If you th- think about the, the prophecy about the Messiah, that what would consume him? A, a zeal for his father's house. And that's what would led him to go and, and chase out uh, the money changers uh, in the temple, uh, both at the beginning and at the end of his ministry. So when we speak about zeal, zeal in and of itself is not the problem. What matters most is uh, the object of our zeal. Well, what are we zealous for and why? In, in Romans 10, the Apostle Paul, speaking about uh, his countrymen, speaking about uh, uh, the Jews that he was uh, seeking to proclaim the gospel to, says, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The zeal is only commendable when it is in accordance with the truth, when it is applied in the right way and to the right degree. And as we come to the final few verses of John 13 uh, this morning, 
we're going to, to see a disciple of Jesus who was, who was full of zeal and yet also misguided. And at this point in John 13, Judas Iscariot, the one who is going to betray Jesus, he has, he's left. And it's Jesus and the, uh, the 11 disciples. Uh, and uh, the, the betrayal is, uh, is already in motion. And Jesus is wasting no time to begin to prepare the 11 remaining disciples uh, for his departure. Uh, and last week we, we studied verses 31 to, to 35. And those were the very beginning of what is known as the upper room discourse or uh, the farewell discourse. And this morning we're going to ultimately land on and, and study verses 36 to 37. But I want to begin reading in verse 31. Jesus Therefore, when he had gone out, speaking of Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews now... I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Pause and pray. All-knowing, infinite Father, You have known the end from the beginning. You have seen and knew about Peter's failure well before it happened. And You know all of our failures as well. Lord, help us to to keep this in mind as we study your word, what you have written down for our instruction. As we study your word, may your word uh, work in our hearts and in our lives to transform us, to draw us nearer to you, help us to worship you, to see you, to behold you, to adore you in spirit and in truth. Enlighten our eyes and use this time for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we, as we read that passage, what we're going to look this, at this morning is really the, the, the questions that Peter uh, asks following uh, Jesus' surprise announcements uh, that we studied last week. Uh, the, the surprise announcements that Jesus made last week of that he was going to be uh, departing from them and that he was giving them a new commandment to follow. And Peter's zeal to follow Jesus leads him to speak very brashly about his willingness to follow Jesus, even to the point of death. And as we we contemplate the zeal of Peter in this passage, 
uh, you and I have the opportunity to examine our own zeal for Christ or uh, our lack of zeal for Christ. As Christians, we understand that Christ is to be the object of our zeal. He is the one that we are to be zealous for. We are to be zealous for him, zealous for his word. And as Titus 2 uh, speaks about, uh, that he saved us so that we might be zealous for good works, good deeds. But how do we know when our zeal for Christ is not what it should be? Because there are times when when our zeal uh, can be misguided. And in this passage, we we will see three facts about zeal that will help us to be zealous for Christ in the right way and in the right degree. And the first fact that we see is presented to us in verse 36. That zeal is errant when it devalues love. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. So the Apostle Peter asks uh, a question, and, and he asks the question, and usually when he asks the question, everybody else is thinking that same question. So he asks on behalf of himself and behalf of the other uh, ten disciples, and uh, he is saying, Lord, where are you going? And it seems like uh, Jesus repeats uh, the answer that he had just previously given, to where he is, go- where I, he is going, that they, they won't be able to, to follow. But if you look back at verse 33, when, when he spoke to them that where I am going, you cannot come. Uh, in verse 33, when he says you, that's plural in the Greek. I wish there was a translation that just translated it as y'all, right? Y'all can't come. But here in verse 36, the you is singular. He's no longer speaking to the 11. He's specifically speaking to Peter. The where I'm going, Peter, you cannot follow after me but then he adds something else he gives a a foreshadowing he says you cannot follow me now but you will follow later hinting at what is uh, to come and if you if you look at the flow of the conversation here it's really interesting because peter seems to uh, fly past what jesus just most recently said in verses 34 and 35 Right, So uh, Peter completely ignores uh, the new commandment and the priority of love in the Christian life. Right? Peter sh- could have said, wow, this is really big. Tell me about this new commandment that you're giving to me right now. Tell me about the, this distinguishing mark that is supposed to be uh, what clarifies and defines and, and marks out d- the disciples of Jesus to the world around us. Tell me about that. That's, that's big. I need to understand the significance of that. Peter could have said that, but he doesn't. He goes back to verse 33. And what Jesus said in verse 33 seemed to be like a mental block for him. He couldn't get past it. Jesus in that verse said that he was leaving. He was going and the disciples could not come. And Peter says, well, where are you going? Peter couldn't get past that. And and in doing uh, that... Going back to verse 33 and ignoring verses 34 and 35, Peter is doing what many of us do, even in our zeal for Christ. He devalued the importance of love. And any zeal that that devalues love is going to be errant. Right now, this is really obvious when we think about uh, the zeal that motivates suicide bombers, right? 
Uh, There is no love when you're going in uh, seeking to, to murder those who are in your immediate vicinity. Those who kill themselves with those hopes, uh, their object, the object of their zeal and the demonstration of their zeal are both errant. But there are other ways, uh, ways that which we can be, uh, we can have the right object of our zeal, Christ, uh, and yet demonstrate our zeal improperly. An obvious case of this comes uh, to mind with uh, a church that is really more infamous than, than famous. Uh, a group, uh, Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. Anyone familiar with them? Uh, they, they are more uh, familiar uh, because of the way that uh, they have uh, spoken really hatefully in their evangelism. And they have many signs on uh, that they hold up in kind of protest and go to street corner. And I would commend them for going and doing street evangelism. I would uh, commend them for calling uh, sinners to repentance uh, and pointing them to people to uh, to trust in Christ and Christ alone. But but the uh, the stumbling block that they add to the gospel uh, and the the language that they use uh, is uh, is not helpful. Right? Where we get our uh, name as a church, Second Corinthians 5.20, we got to read that verse this month, right? Uh, therefore, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. And we, we beg you, we implore you uh, on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We have a, a message and a ministry of reconciliation, and it's really hard to proclaim a message of reconciliation uh, with language that is communicating the exact opposite, Right? And it's hard to implore people when we are uh, when there is anger within our hearts, uh, and so we don't need to add another stumbling block uh, for for the world to stumble over uh, with the message of the gospel. Now, the message of the gospel is already foolishness to those who are perishing, uh, and we are commanded to go and to proclaim the truth of God's word, uh, and indeed we must not shrink back uh, from that proclamation. We are to proclaim the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man. Uh, the exclusivity of Christ and the necessity of uh, faith in Christ, turning uh, to Christ and turning from sin. But Ephesians 4.15 says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. And while our conduct as Christians is not able to to save anyone, uh, it can certainly uh, be a stumbling block to those outside of the church. If you keep your finger here in John's Gospel and turn over to to Titus chapter 2, a passage that you are probably familiar with. But but notice in this passage, as the Apostle Paul gives instructions to uh, the church at He's going to address all of the the different uh, demographic uh, groups in the church in Titus 2. Uh, And and notice that he's going to make a very important connection between uh, their their conduct and their their proclamation of God's word. uh, And how their conduct is going to uh, reflect and communicate a message uh, to the world around them uh, about God. To begin in verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And then there's a a purpose statement, so that older women are to to exemplify those characteristics so that they may instruct the younger women in sensibility, 
to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Here's another purpose statement. So that the word of God will not be slandered. Likewise, the younger men, to be sensible in all things, show yourself to be a model of good works with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in word, which is irreproachable, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be pleasing, not contradicting, nor not pilfering, but demonstrating all good faith, so that... They will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in everything. Our conduct inside the church and our conduct outside of the church is going to have a huge proclamation power to it. And when we are walking in obedience to Christ, when we are proclaiming the truth in love, it is going to adorn the doctrine of God. It's going to make the Greek word there for adorn is the idea of cosmetics. Uh, the idea that we uh, get to make uh, God a, more and more attractive by the way that we conduct ourselves. We can be zealous for God, and yet if we, if we depart from uh, love, all of that is going to evaporate. There must be a tension between truth and love, uh, a balancing act, so to speak. But even that needs to be explained a little bit more. See, on the one hand, in one sense, it is impossible to overvalue love and it is impossible to overvalue truth you can't love too much and you can't truth too much i know that's not grammatically correct but bear bear with me the danger lies when we neglect or sacrifice one in the service of the other okay uh, the, the, the danger uh, arises when we can be uh, zealous uh, to love but in our zeal to love others we sacrifice the truth Right? That is what uh, the world is calling us to do repeatedly. Right, Love your neighbor, but just ignore the truth. And when we're willing to sacrifice truth in favor of love, we're, we're going to be errant. Uh, and when we are willing to sacrifice uh, love uh, in, uh, and only emphasize the truth, uh, that's also going to be an, an errant zeal. We can be zealous for the truth, but if we sacrifice love in our proclamation of the truth, we just add an additional uh, stumbling block before others in our evangelism. Uh, and, and speaking the truth in love does not mean that we won't offend people. It doesn't mean that, that people will not like what we say for speaking the truth in love. Uh, woe to you if all men speak well of you. That's what Jesus said. If you are seeking to please everyone, you're not going to please God. Uh, We need to stand on the truth. Uh, And if we are speaking in love, we're going to be uh, speaking and acting in a way that is for the best interest of others. Uh, Love is not just uh, seeking to make everybody happy. If we think of our uh, definition of love that we looked at last week from Jerry Bridges, that love is attitudes and actions that seek the best interest of the other person regardless of how we feel toward him. See, that is what genuine love looks like. And we are called to communicate uh, that message and to be zealous for the truth, uh, but also to be uh, loving. Uh, And uh, oftentimes we do exactly what Peter does here. We just ignore it. We we devalue it. We speed right past it to other things. Peter can't wait to get on to these other truths that that, that Jesus uh, is uh, revealing to them. 
But Jesus says, no, this is the new commandment that I'm giving to you. This characteristic of love is going to distinguish you to all, to everyone. And Peter just speeds right past that. That is uh, where zeal becomes errant, when it devalues love. There's a, a second fact about zeal that's seen here in verse 37. That zeal is errant when it overestimates self. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Peter, Peter responds to Jesus, and he's making a very confident assertion here about his own willingness to die for Jesus. Uh, and, and the disciples understood uh, the danger that they were in. And this really goes back to John, uh, as far back as John 11. At that point in time, uh, the Jewish religious leaders were, were seeking to arrest and kill Jesus. And the disciples knew that. Uh, and that's where at the beginning of John 11, Jesus and the disciples were kind of uh, in the wilderness uh, towards the north in, in the region of Galilee. And when they get news that Lazarus had died. Uh, and when, when Jesus announces uh, that he's going to go down uh, and visit Bethany uh, where Lazarus had, uh, or at that point he was uh, sick. Uh, he says, I'm going to go down and visit uh, Lazarus. And, and the disciples are not too excited about that. Chapter 11, verse uh, 16, uh, says, Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, uh, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. See, Thomas knew and understood, if we go down there, we may not be coming back. They understood the hostility uh, surrounding Christ at that point in time. And here Peter is saying, uh, not only that he's ready to, to die, he doesn't say, I'm just ready to die. He says, I'm willing to give up my life, willing to give up my soul on behalf of Jesus. And the other gospel accounts kind of fill in some additional bravado for us from the upper room. Matthew 26, verse 33. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, he says, I will never fall away. Mark 14, 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Based upon what Peter was saying, and Mark adds, and they all were saying the same thing also. Peter's, Peter's words here are, are loaded with irony because what Peter is saying here echoes what Jesus said or what, how Jesus described the good shepherd back in John 10. What does the good shepherd do? He lays his life down for the sheep and this is just loaded with irony because uh, uh peter is saying this to jesus and it's ironic because as we're going to see peter is not ready to do what he's saying he's ready to do and additionally he's speaking those words to somebody who is willing to lay down his life truly for peter loaded with irony and it's easy for Easy for Peter to, to speak with bravado in the upper room, right? But when it gets down to uh, a garden in the middle of the night, and there's a mob with, I would assume, with torches, and they're coming to arrest Jesus, he's going to exemplify some zeal. He's going to pull out his sword and cut off the, the servant or the ear of the, the servant, Malchus, 
servant of the high priest. But then after that, he's going to flee. He's going to scatter. He, or Peter is speaking boldly here, but what we see here is that Peter really has no humility. No, no fear of sin and no really understanding of his own human weakness. He doesn't see those things. You're probably familiar, at least in, in title, of uh, Herman Melville, Melville's book, Moby Dick. The, the storyline centers on uh, Captain Ahab, a whaling uh, boat captain who is in pursuit of the white whale. Uh, and uh, he is ready to, to risk uh, his own life uh, and the life of all of his crew in pursuit of this whale. But, but his, his first mate, a man named Starbuck, is a man of more sense. Uh, and, and he evaluates all of the, all of the crew uh, according to uh, one major criteria. I will have no man in my boat, said Starbuck, who is not afraid of a whale. The author's words, by this he seemed to me not only that the most reliable and useful courage was that which arises from the fair estimation of the encountered peril, but that an utterly fearless man is a far more dangerous comrade than a coward. We have to have a fair estimation. We have to have a right understanding of the peril that sin and our own weakness presents to us. Because of our own human weakness, because of our own human sinfulness, we are all capable, actually even more than that, we are all prone to stumble into sin. We've sung these words before as a congregation, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Really, there should be no Christian who is not afraid of stumbling into sin. We need to, to have a healthy fear now that we are capable of doing things that we should not do. If you show me a man who is not afraid of sin, I will show you a man who is bound to sin. It's only a matter of time. And this admonition is repeated throughout the Scriptures. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen: How blessed is the man who is always in dread, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. First Corinthians ten verse twelve. And then this stood out to me this week as I was reading in Second Corinthians chapter ten verse twelve, as Paul is speaking to and addressing these false apostles in the Corinthian church. He doesn't say, I'm, I, he's not saying that he wants to compare himself to them. He says, for we dare not to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Right? When you measure yourself according to yourself, how, are you, how is that measurement going to turn out? I look great. This is amazing, Right? But that's what that's what we tend to do. We evaluate ourselves with ourselves as the measuring stick. I love this quote from from J.C. Ryle that pulls all of this together. How we ought to respond to this? He says, "Let it be a settled principle in our religion 
that there is an amount of weakness in all our hearts of which we have no adequate conception and that we never know how far we might fall if we were tempted. We fancy sometimes, like Peter, that there are some things we could not possibly do. And we look pitifully upon others who fall into certain sins and please ourselves in the thought that at any rate we should not have done so. We know nothing at all. The seeds of every sin are latent in our hearts, even when renewed, and they only need occasion or carelessness or the withdrawal of God's grace for a season to put forth an abundant crop. Like Peter, we may think we can do wonders for Christ, and like Peter, we may learn by bitter experience that we have no power and might at all. Those are the things that we need to keep in mind. Our tendency... There are certain categories of sin that we say, we say, oh, I could never, ever do that. Now, that, that is beneath me. I would never uh, be tempted in that way. No, you, you don't know the weakness of your own heart. Uh, we look uh, and, and elevate ourselves over others as, as we see others who stumble and fall into sin. What, what's our tendency? Say, I don't know how they could ever do that. I would I would never. But when, when we're doing that, what are we doing? We're elevating ourselves and we're looking down upon them as if we are incapable of such sins. But wasn't David a man after God's own heart? And what sins did he commit? Adultery, murder, cover-up, conspiracy, so many things. These are severe sins. How did, how did David get to that point? Probably by thinking, I would never commit such sins. And then suddenly, he has committed such sins. Has anyone else ever had that experience? Well, I would never. And then it's like, oh, I just did. We need to be aware. At the same time, as we, we can be zealous for Christ, and yet we can overestimate ourselves. And when we do, that type of zeal is going to be errant. It's going to be errant when we, when we devalue love or when we overestimate ourselves. But third, third fact here about zeal, you could say that zeal is purified or refined when tested by God. Look at verse 38. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So, imagine how Jesus felt talking to Peter throughout the course of his ministry. Like, Peter just continues to say stuff. And Jesus, being all-knowing, he knows, like, okay, Peter, I wonder if, like, this is going to be fun when when you see this for what it really is. Jesus responds with a rhetorical question. Really, Peter? Will you truly give up your life for me? And then Jesus makes uh, an assertion of his own, and, and he introduces it with a solemn warning. And again, the you is singular. He's speaking directly to Peter. And he introduces this usually when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's really, really certain. Now, he's making a proclamation that is serious and direct. 
says, Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, you will deny me. You're going to deny me this night before the rooster crows. That, in that part of uh, Palestine, it was common for, for roosters to crow in the, in the middle of the night, between midnight and three. And so the, that watch of the night became known as the, uh, the cock crow watch from, from midnight to three. It says, before, basically before 3 a.m., you're going to have denied me three times. Now, you're so certain now, but let me tell you what's really going to happen. Now think about this. Jesus just lowered the boom on Peter. When, when the Apostle John asked privately about who was going to betray Jesus, Jesus answered privately, right? He privately identified the one who's going to betray him, but he publicly announces to the eleven that Peter is going to deny him. And I think this has a very, very profound effect upon Peter, because over the next few chapters, the disciples are going to have lots of questions. In 14.5, Thomas is going to ask a question. In 14.8, Philip is going to ask a question. In 14.22, Judas, not Iscariot, uh, is going to ask a question. And then multiple disciples ask a question in 16.18. But we don't hear from Peter again. Like Jesus' words here just cut him immediately to the heart, and he's just sitting there thinking, I wonder if Peter heard anything else that night besides this. He's just completely silenced. You don't see Peter again until chapter 18. When he's cut off the ear of the Malchus as he's trying to defend Jesus. That's that same portion of chapter 18 where Peter's going to deny Jesus those three times. But then later on in chapter 21, the resurrected Christ going to appear to, to Peter and, and James and John. Uh, and he's going to uh, three times ask Peter a question. He's going to say, Peter, do you love me? Uh, and, uh, and Peter three times answers in the affirmative. Uh, and uh, the third time that question is asked, uh, Peter appeals to Jesus' omniscience. He says, Lord, you know that I do. You know the depths of my heart, and you know that I love you. And each time uh, Peter answers in the affirmative, Christ gives him a charge. He says, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Basically, love my people. And what was the command that Peter sped past here in our passage? The one that's not that important, but Jesus, where are you going? I don't know, Peter, let's go back to... That new command, love my sheep, love one another. Peter's restored in John 21, and then Peter is the most prominent leader in the early church. That, ch- that church in Jerusalem, Acts chapters 1 through 12, Peter is the central figure. He's restored and put to use. According to church history, Peter eventually does follow after Jesus. Remember, Jesus says, you can't right now, but you will. At the end of his life, uh, Peter was crucified, but he was crucified upside down. He's no longer overestimating himself at this point. He's crucified upside down because he says, I am not worthy to die in the same way that my Lord died. 
what is taking place here. Peter being refined. Peter being tested. Here in the upper room, Peter has been told that he's about to be tested and that he's going to fail miserably. But his failure is going to be a part of a larger process. When you refine metal, you melt down that metal. And as the the metal melts down, all of the the impurities, all of the imperfections, uh, everything else that's not a part of that metal drifts to the top. And then you you scrape off the top, you scrape the the dross away, and in doing so, you are refining, you are purifying that metal. Proverbs 25.4 says, Take away the dross from the silver, and there comes out a vessel for the smith. You could say that Peter's denial of Christ on the night of his arrest is a part of his own refinement. Christ is taking the, the cowardice and the pride out of Peter in order to prepare a vessel for his own use. And once Peter has tasted uh, the bitterness of his own pride, the bitterness of his own cowardice, he will be cured from that. He's no longer afraid of death. He has a right estimation of himself. And Peter's testing and his failure were both a grace. They were both a gift from God because they were both preparing him for the future, preparing him to be used by God in ministry. And we need to see God's hand in our own personal refining process. And not only do we need to see it, we need to see it as a grace. Now, this is a blessing from God for him to reveal our hearts, what we are truly zealous for. Love what Augustine says. He says, trials come to prove and improve us. And our zeal for Christ is being proved and improved as it is tested and tried by God through our circumstances. And Peter's life here gives us hope. Peter's uh, failure here gives us hope. And it gives us the right perspective. Because all too often, uh, we are discouraged uh, for a really, really long time uh, concerning our stumblings into sin. And in one sense, we need to be discouraged. And in one sense, we need to uh, be sorrowful and we need to grieve over our sin. But our grief over sin should lead us somewhere. All too often, we just like to, to stay right there in that grief. It's to lead us to repentance. Our, our stumbling ought to lead us to sure-footedness as we learn to rely upon Christ rather than ourselves. And the, the life of Peter shows us that God is able to use us even when we have failed miserably in the past or we are currently failing miserably in the present. It shows us that how we are to be evaluated uh, in this this testing and this uh, refining process is a lifelong process. Your past or present sin and failings are not the end of the testing and refinement. And God is able to use you here today, even if you have failed in the past or are failing in the present. Peter fails miserably on the night of Jesus' betrayal. But then he has years and years of faithfulness. Because that failure, that the lessons of his failure sunk so deeply into his heart and into his mind that he understood from that point forward what he needed to do. And the testing of your faith, your zeal for Christ is a lifelong test. So don't get discouraged when you stumble. Again, I'm not a prophet, but you are going to stumble. You have in the past, you probably are in the present, and you will in the future. 
But the proper response to sin in the Christian life, the proper response to our sinfulness, is to agree with God about it. To confess it. To say, God, this is, this is my heart and all of its ugliness. This is what your word says about my heart right here and right now. And it's ugly. I don't like it and I know you don't like it. But I'm pleading with you for mercy. I'm, I'm asking for mercy not because of anything that I have done, but because I know that if I look to Christ, even as we sang today, wasn't that a powerful song? His robes for mine. That I become like Christ and he becomes like me. He puts on all of my sinfulness and I put on all of his purity and holiness. That's the exchange that takes place. That's the reason that we obtain mercy through all of our failures. But that is how we are to respond to sin. To confess it, to forsake it, and to turn to Christ. And that's, that's the remedy whether you have never done that in your entire life. Do that today. And that's the remedy if you have been walking with Christ for years and years. Agree with God about your sin. Confess it. Ask for mercy. Turn from it and turn to Christ in faith. Look to Him. If you remember uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, Paul, Paul rejoiced over how the Corinthians had responded to his previous letter. Not, not, and the previous letter isn't, isn't actually 1 Corinthians. See, our 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians in our Bible is actually 4 Corinthians. And in between those two, uh, there's what's known as the severe letter. That Paul wrote a letter. It's lost to, to history, but Paul wrote to them uh, and spoke some strong words. And this is the letter that he's referring to in 2 Corinthians 7, beginning of verse 8. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. But now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have a godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For godly sorrow produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world brings about death. Think about that. Paul says, I am rejoicing that I made you sorrowful. I had to write uh, some strong words. Paul had to speak the truth in love. He held those intentions perfectly. So I had to speak the truth in love to you, and it brought you sorrow, but only sorrow for a time. It brought them to the point of repentance, and Paul was rejoicing because of that, because they were uh, turning to God in repentance, and because they turned to God in repentance, they would, that would lead to life rather than death. As I've mentioned in the past, two characters are often thrown together in, in Bible passages. that They are intended to, to be a contrast. In John 13, we have, we have the contrast of two disciples of Jesus. Both are going to sin. Both are going to have sorrow. Both uh, are uh, going to respond to their sin. And, and the key point is how they respond differently. And the hearts of each of these men, what they were truly zealous for, was revealed through their response to their sin. 
Judas the betrayer, who is zealous for money, is willing to, to turn over Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And he's going to experience remorse. But, but his is a worldly remorse. He has a guilty conscience and he is unwilling to agree with God about his sin. He's unwilling to turn from his sin and turn to Christ in faith. Peter is the denier. And he's initially zealous for his own life. He wants to live. You're like, that's not a bad thing, right? But he's even willing to deny knowing Jesus in order to save his own life. Peter's going to have sorrow over his failure, but it's a different kind of sorrow because ultimately he confesses, he agrees with God, and then he turns away from his sin and he turns to Christ in faith. Those how Peter's zeal, once it was revealed to him, didn't stay continually the same object. It shifted from valuing and being zealous for his life to being zealous for the glory of Christ. He moves from, I'm going to be zealous to live, to rather, I'm going to be zealous to live for Christ. And that's what we should see over the course of our Christian life. We should see the object of our zeal uh, shifting slightly away from the things of this world and shifting on to the person of Christ. And then we should see our zeal growing each and every day for Jesus. As we contemplate what he has done for us, as we meditate upon the grace that we have received and the mercy that we have found in him. But we have to see, we have to learn here that we have to to focus our zeal. We have to to temper our zeal, not uh, devaluing love in our zeal, not overestimating ourselves in our zeal. But knowing that our zeal is going to be refined by God. And it's going to be refined through our own mistakes and our other circumstances that come into our life. And how we respond to those circumstances is going to make known to us what we are really zealous for. Is it Christ or is it anything else? If we're zealous for Christ, uh, there will be life and blessings that flow out of that. If we're zealous for anything else... What we will do when, when we are come face to face with our sin, we will cover it, we'll conceal it, we may confess it. Right? Judas went to the, the religious leaders and he said, I've done wrong, I've betrayed innocent blood. But he doesn't truly turn back to God in faith. See, oftentimes we are willing to confess, but we don't want to turn. All of this, what are you zealous for? How will you respond to the sin in your life? How will you respond to the circumstances of life? And time and your response will tell the truth, right? One of my favorite sayings from John MacArthur, time and truth go hand in hand. And aren't you glad that even though right now on the narrow perspective of Peter's life, he's failing miserably, but on the the grand scheme, when you look at his entire life, he passes wonderfully. Let that be an encouragement to us. Amen? Amen? Let's pray and then.